completely countercultural lifestyle that brought the character of heaven to earth, starting with Jesus. So Jesus' words are intended certainly for the churches back in the time of Revelation as they seek to live out the character of God as it's revealed both through Jesus' life and through the word of God. But these words are also intended just as much for us today, Bridge Church 2021, as we seek to live out the character of heaven in our day-to-day lives. Now, I want to take a moment and emphasize an observation Josh made in his sermon last week. He used the phrase third culture uh, to make the point that we're now living in a post-Christian culture. And therefore, these words from Jesus are just as relevant today as they were to the church in the first century. Listen to this description of our culture from Brett Powell from his book, The End of Christendom. Let me just read this out, and if our, our kids' church are filling it out, this first sentence is an answer to one of, the, one of your questions there. We are at the end of Christendom. Not Christianity, not the church. Christendom is the economic, political, and social life as inspired by Christian principles. That is what is ending, and because we live in it from day to day, we do not see the decline. The church is no longer a trusted lighthouse for society. In fact, most people believe the further society flees from the influence of the church, the better off society will be. We are not living in an era of change, but in a change of era. That's really important. But in a change of era. This is undeniable and therefore cannot be ignored. We were trained in seminary for ministry in Jerusalem, but we are now living in Babylon. And this is just really something that we need to grab a hold of. This is our world today. We are in a post-Christian culture. I was just thinking about that, thinking, how do I explain this a little bit? And I was thinking, especially since I had third to fifth graders in here, when I was in third to fifth grade and I was growing up, we had what they called the blue laws. Anybody remember the blue laws? The blue laws. On Sunday morning... Nothing took place. No stores were open. There was no sporting events. Everybody was expected to be at church, to be in fellowship, to be worshiping. And uh, nothing started like sports and anything until afternoon. Just think about that for a second. And think about where we're at today as a culture. Everything happens on Sunday morning. Parties, sporting events, entertainment. Everything happens. It's like Christianity, religion, following God. It's like another spoke on a wheel of many other things. You can see a great change in the ethos of our culture as we're thinking about that. We've become post-Christian, and certainly that means we're now in what would be considered very similar to the apostolic era that we're now moving into. So in the last two weeks, Jesus has both encouraged the churches at Ephesus and Smyrna, but he's also pointed out that the church in Ephesus, although a hard-working church, faithful in its doctrine, was losing its first love. It was no longer living a love relationship with Jesus and extending that love to others. It was becoming rigid, harsh, judgmental, exclusive, and as a result, it was losing 
the presence of Jesus and its ability to be a light to the world. Then last week, as Josh preached, the church in Smyrna was facing adversity and persecution from the outside, and Jesus urges them to not fear and remain faithful. And today we look at the words of Jesus to the church in Pergamum and his strong warning against compromising with the world. So let's read that word, Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a name written on it, not only to the one who receives it. The end of God's word for today as we move forward. So let's start. We're just going to work through this a little bit. I always like to give a little bit of the background. I think it's important for us. Pergamum, what kind of city was it? It was a great and proud city. Its population was 190,000 people in 96 AD when this was written. And it stood overlooking the Aegean Sea. If you could put that first up there, the ruins picture. You see that? That's the ruins, and you see how it looked, overlooked the Aegean Sea. This was quite a spot. It was quite amazing. And uh, it was known for its advances in medicine and as a center of the arts. The city's Acropolis rivaled Athens, and its library was second largest in the ancient world. There were 200,000 parchments there. Mark Anthony gave this library as a gift to Cleopatra. Interesting, I wonder if she read all those parchments. It was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia and a center for the imperial cult of Caesar. Now, as strong as Pergamon was in political and cultural advancements, it was more famous, and if you're filling this out in your kids' thing, it was more famous for its many religions. In addition to the emperor worship, four other Religious cults of the day thrived. The cults of Zeus, Athena, Dionysus, and this word is a hard one to pronounce, Asclepius. Now I'm bringing a little Italian into that one, <laughs> just to give you a little flavor of it. Um, but uh, let me put the second picture up. That, okay, so this is, get a sense of what this looked like. This was quite a spot, right, when they, when they put this up. And you can see, like, all the temples all up on these hills, they, they basically dominated uh, the city. It was, it was a city of religions. And, and the symbol of Asopolis was the serpent. He was the god of healing, was the serpent. He was the god of healing. If you could put that picture of him on the throne up, that'd be great. This is him. You see all the snakes around him? 
And, and they write about this. They, like at his temple, this was like the lords of Asia Minor. Everybody know about lords where people come for healing and still do today where the waters of lords are? Well, this is what this was like, but it was about snakes. People would come to the temple and they would literally sleep on the floors at night and tame snakes would slither around. I know everybody likes this, right? And if a snake slithered on a person, that was meant as though the God was coming and was going to bring healing to that person. This was some pretty wild things going on in this city. And you can see why Jesus calls this the city where Satan has his throne, the city where Satan lives. So this is an idea of what's going on in this city. Not much different than uh, what goes on in cities today in different ways, right? So do we have a city called Sin City? Does anybody know what that city is? Las Vegas, Sin, love it, Sin City. We have occult types of things going on in all of our cities, Satan worship going on. So basically, we have the same type of situation happening right now where we're living. And we are living in an apostolic era because we are post-Christian and where we're at. So let's move forward. There's this Pergamum, and then there's this picture out of Revelation 1, the description of Jesus coming as one who has a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. So if you want to put that picture up, I don't know if you guys can make that out, but you can see here's John having the vision, and there is Jesus, and there's the sword coming out of his mouth. And the thing that you need to know, and if, you're, if the kids' church people are going along with the outline, the sword, the double-edged sword, represents the Word of God. That's what it represents. It represents the Word of God. In Ephesians 6, 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So Jesus is coming strong with the Word of God to fight, as we're going to see, compromise. So what does Jesus do? He commends this church for its faithful witness in the face of open persecution they were experiencing. Remember that the imperial cult were having people proclaim his name as God and sacrificing to him. And Antipas, who was the bishop of Pergamum, refused to do that. And so he was put to death. He was sentenced to death. He was a martyr during that time. In the city, the bishop was martyred. And they, the story goes that he was martyred on the, zone of, the throne of Zeus uh, at that temple. So you can see this is what people were experiencing. They were experiencing this amazing pressure that Josh taught on last week. They experienced this persecution with their bishop actually being martyred. And Jesus commends them for persevering in the midst of this and continuing to lift up the name of Jesus faithfully uh, in the midst of this persecution. But then these, this word, nevertheless. Nevertheless, there's a few things against you. Some in the church were following and being influenced by the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. So if you're filling out your true and false, you can see where that's at. So what is this teaching that was going on? Well, the story of Balaam can be found in the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapters 22 
through 24 and chapter 31. Balaam was a prophet. If you're filling it out, Balaam was a prophet who profited by prophesying. He took advantage of being a prophet. He actually, if you wanted a word from him, you had to pay for it. And so the, the kings of that area came, and they wanted him to curse Israel. And he kept sort of playing them off. I think he was trying to raise his price. He was quite good at doing these things, it seemed. But God never allowed him to curse Israel. And the kings that wanted to pay him money were, how come you're not doing it? And so he came up with a different plan and he came to the king Balak and he said to him, listen, here's what you can do. You can have your prettiest and most loveliest women come into Israel and seduce the, women of his, uh, the men of Israel. And as they're being seduced, they will begin to worship the gods of the women that they're with. And if you read the story going on, this is exactly what happens. They are being enticed and enticed in a way where they are going to be intimate with women and even marry them and all of a sudden be drawn in to relationships with their God. And in this they began, as you could see, compromising. Now what about the teaching of the Nicolaitans? Well, as we learned with the church of Ephesus, the Nicolaitans were followers of Nicholas who apparently taught that you were free in Christ to do whatever you wanted to do with no consequences, a license to sin. And they took Romans, the idea that Paul wrote in Romans 5.20, this idea the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And they took that and literally wrapped around a whole different theology so that they could do the desires of their hearts by saying, well, the more we sin, the more grace is going to abound, so we can sin. That sounds right, doesn't it? And you can see how that's being twisted around. And, and the other thing they, they were about, they were about this idea of a power and using it in a very political way. So these things were going on. So you can see this combined hybrid teaching of both Balaam and the Nicolaitans was that you could compromise your behavior and mix in what the world is doing, yet at the same time believing that you were walking in the Spirit and honoring Jesus. That's a pretty sad indictment, isn't it? I don't think some people, as it said, some people were following it and some people were being influenced by this. And you can see that if you were really being pressured about imperial cult worship and there was persecution coming and people were being put to death because of it, there, there'd be this sort of desire to like, eh, maybe I don't need to be that extreme. You can see how that thought begins to come in and now here comes this teaching that says, well, you can sort of be with the world, right? None of us go through that. It's a sad indictment on the church. So even though they knew compromise was wrong, there was a sense in which as they had this teaching 
In some way, they were free to do it. There are no consequences. It looked like fun. It looked exciting. Yet, at the same time, as we were doing this, we still had this idea that we were spiritually alive. We were walking in the spirit. And there's a scripture verse that I think really speaks to this. It's 2 Timothy 4.3. If you put that up. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And certainly that was happening in Church of Pergamum, and it's certainly happening today in our world. And a lot of that comes by the influence of culture. The influence of culture around us, working with the desires of our own hearts and the devil. As these three things are going on. And we can use the influence of culture to compromise. Right now, culture seems overwhelming, doesn't it? What does culture seem like to you right now? It's overwhelming. All of us have been barred at 24-7 with a variety of cultural messages. And, and young people, if you're filling this out, when you begin answering what influences you to compromise, here's some of those things as you're thinking about them. You can spend 30 seconds on social media and you'll get a cultural message. You can watch your favorite sitcom and you're getting a cultural message. Listen to your favorite music. Play your favorite video games. Look at those Super Bowl commercials. And we can go on the list of how many things in our culture 24-7 are coming at us with the message of our culture, with the values of our culture. Even your best friends can be people who influence you in that way. And in the midst of it, we're struggling to hold fast to sound scriptural truth. We're struggling. On the one hand, we abridge. I know this is what we talk about in our philosophy of ministry. We want to be a missional outpost in a hostile culture, don't we? We want to be a mission outpost. We believe that's what we're called to be. We want to love our neighbor as ourselves. We want to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We want to hold fast to the word of God. We want to treat it as actually the word of God. And we believe that we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And yet at the same time, we're finding that when we engage culture, sometimes we have to resist we have to stand against it. We have to fight the good fight of faith. And you can grow, and I know I can grow. We can grow weary doing this, can we not? Nobody here wants to be rejected by your neighbor, by your friends, by the people you go to school with, people you work with. And yet, if we hold true to this word, yeah, we can be rejected. We can be canceled. 
Think about that for a second. What kind of pressure does that put on us? We're living in a culture. What does Scripture reveal to us about marriage, about sex inside and outside of marriage, about sexual orientation and attraction? What does it teach us about these things? And how do we stand on a principle and yet love as God has called us to love? These are things that we need to look at together. These are things that we need to come with. There's the influence of the culture that is upon us. And there's the word of truth. And there's the ability to love in the midst of that. And so how does that look? What does it look like, Bridge Church, as we step into our world? We need to pray as a church about these things. We need to ask and seek the Lord. But it isn't. Think of other things. I think about the political agenda out there today. It's scary that a political agenda actually becomes the truth of Scripture for people. It actually has reversed itself. That now, because we have a political agenda, we're going to get the Word of God and we're going to wrap it around our agenda and we're going to make it sound like it's spiritual truth when it isn't. And we need this word of God, the sharp double-edged sword, to speak to us so that we don't step into this compromise. Because when that begins to happen, our values are then compromised. The way we treat people is compromised. The way we use money is compromised. I mean, we can go through the whole list of things. And that's what the word is coming to us today about. Where are we, brothers and sisters, as we think about these things? It's definitely a big question for us. And I know we want to stand firm, and I know we want to be able to represent Christ, and I know that we want to love people as Christ loves people. I know that. But are we being influenced, and what are we doing? to help us not to be. Tony Evans, African-American pastor, he says this about compromise. You have a quote there. Compromise is the cancer of the church, and we must rid Christ's body of it. While Christians can compromise on preferences, they cannot compromise on principles. We can't be one way on Sunday and another on Monday. This is a major problem among Christians in American society today. We don't take a stand. We don't keep our standards. We merely shift to satisfy society. We want to know why the church does not have a voice today. Let's just begin thinking about how much we're compromising. What kind of voice can we really have if we don't seem to be people with integrity? We say one thing and we're doing another thing. Here's a way of thinking about spiritual compromise. Spiritual compromise isn't choosing other gods to worship instead of Jesus. It's trying to include other gods or idols along with our worship of Jesus. Right? It's not choosing other. 
it's including others and still trying to have Jesus in there, and it just doesn't work. Because Jesus has told us that we can either serve one master. So if our children are filling out their outlines, compromise says, I know I shouldn't, but why not? That's what compromise says. I know I shouldn't, but why not? But why not? It's accepting a lower moral standard to live by that lessens or deadens our spiritual effectiveness. And I was just thinking about this, high school, thinking, yeah, what was that like for me? I grew up in a, with a Catholic background. I grew up knowing the word of God. I knew of growing the Ten Commandments. I knew morally what was right. I got to high school, and this became my motto. I know I shouldn't, but why not? Why shouldn't I go out and do drugs? Why shouldn't I have sex? Why shouldn't I live for myself? You can go through the whole list of things. And by the time I was out of high school, I no longer had any belief in anything about but myself and my own pleasure and what I wanted to do. What it does is it calluses your heart as you do that. Your heart begins getting harder and harder and less, you know, this, this idea of like become more resistant to the truth. I was, as you guys know, I was a youth pastor and talking to high school and college age here, a lot of times, either be with a high schooler or with someone who's in college, and they would come into the office and they would say, I'm really struggling with my faith. I, I really don't, I really need to give it up. I don't really see it as something that's truth anymore or anything like that. And here was the bottom line through it all. Did you have sex with somebody? And more often than not, that's what happened. And more often than not, that compromise led them down a path where they no longer saw themselves having a relationship with God. I think about the workplace. So, 1980, I had a born-again experience, and I was still working in the restaurant business. And, you know, restaurant business, like most workplaces, have their own little subculture. And that subculture has different types of uh, temptations in it and, and different types of uh, ethos to the workplace, right? Now think about that for a second. What's it like to be accepted in a workplace? And what might I compromise to do that? And I remember really struggling with that, struggling it, with it a lot. I remember times riding home from work and as I was praying, I, I was saying to the Lord, I'm really sorry, Lord. Sometimes there was tears in my eyes as I was driving home because I just fell into it so naturally. Just so naturally. I'm so thankful for the Holy Spirit. You know what the church does? It loses its pilgrim perspective when it begins compromising. We lose the sense that we're, we're on a journey here. And this journey, we're not citizens of heaven, of earth. We're citizens of heaven. And we're on a journey. And we're pilgrims here. This isn't our home. 
in the sense that this is not where we will be, and we don't need to adopt the values here. Peter tells us there were aliens and strangers as children of God in this land. So here's some scripture I'd like us to consider as we think about compromise and this word of compromise. It's, it's Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, and it's pretty familiar to you. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the message version of this this morning because I think it does a good job of um, explaining it in, in the words that we've been speaking about. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life you're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. The words there are, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what's going on here. This is what I want to encourage us. This is what I believe Christ was going to here when he basically said, you need to now take action. You need to take action. Compromise is something that cannot be for the children of God. Compromise destroys your ability to be light in the world. Compromise makes you someone who treats people in a way that isn't loving. Compromise takes truth and makes it lukewarm at best. Compromise will callous your heart to such a degree that you want to walk away from Jesus. So take action. What does he say? Take action. And what is that action? Repent. Here's this word again. Repent. Repent. It's, it's a wonderful word, right? What does it mean? I think sometimes people think it just means I'm sorry. It, there's sort of that in it, but it's way more than that. It's looking at what you're doing and saying, no, I'm no longer going to do this. I see it, and I'm turning from it, and I'm turning completely away from it, and I'm turning back to God. And as I turn back to God, I begin to say to him, Lord, I confess this to you. I ask you, please, Forgive me for this. And because of what Jesus has done on the cross, because of the power of his blood, he says, I forgive you. Every time, it tells us in 1 John, when we confess, he is faithful to forgive through the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Every time. Every time. And so we turn. But it can't just end turning there, right? Something else has to happen. What has to happen, brothers and sisters, is we have to make a commitment to the word. Because as he comes in the word that will judge us, we need to be people of the word so we can walk in it. And that's why I love Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. Listen to it. For the word of God 
is alive and active. Sharper, listen, sharper than any double-edged sword. Where did you hear that? It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Wow. This is the word of God. This is what it does. How amazing is this gift? You know, conviction, you're going to hear from me, is a really good thing. I'm going to say it again. Conviction is a really good thing. It means that the Spirit of God is alive in us, is working in us. And when I go to this Word and I begin to read this truth and this truth begins to speak to me and says, Ange, that's where your heart is. Do you see? Do you see where you're compromising? Now, I can do one of two things. I could say, I can rationalize that away. I can justify it. I can walk away. Or I can say, thank you for pointing this out. I now need to come. I need to repent and confess. And now, Holy Spirit, you're able, because my heart has been open, to empower me to resist this temptation, to live differently, to become more like Jesus. That goes on every day of our lives, almost every minute of our lives, does it not? And so this word is so precious. I love when... The word tells us it's more precious than gold. It's sweeter than honey. You eat this word. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So there's something so valuable. And so I want to encourage you. I don't care how young you are or how old you are. Are you in the word of God? Are you letting the word speak to you? When you go to the Word of God, do you ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, make this alive in my heart and make me ready to receive what you need to speak to me because I know your job. Your job is to make me more like Jesus. I don't want to fight that. I want to do it. And I don't want to be living in compromise. I want to be able to love, to stand, to speak the truth in love. Our world desperately needs it. So help me, Lord. This is how I take action. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters. How many of you have been looking at the 24-7 news? With, it's, I, I, I got to do it. But how many of us during that time have gone to the Word and taken Psalm 46 out and said, Lord, let me pray this psalm for the people of the Ukraine. Lord. So I just want to encourage us, brothers and sisters, it's easy. We all fall into compromise, but it's what we do. It's how we begin to move out of it. How we begin to have the Holy Spirit touch us and take our hearts and move us. And we take action. We turn. We ask forgiveness. But if we just stay there, we're right back again. We have to come to the Word of God. 
And let this word of God speak to us in a very powerful way. And then, brothers and sisters, let's do it together. Right? I love Bible studies when everybody's talking about different things that are going on. There's so many different... Men's Bible study on Wednesday. I mean, it's great. There's so many different perspectives in the room. It's one of the richest times when people are talking and saying what's going on. And then we have prayer and we look at the word of God together. Our women's Bible study the same way. Small groups, by God's grace, we're doing that. Our victory youth, I know that's happening in our victory youth. These are the things that we want to see happen. Listen, we're in a 24-7 world. There's going to be something coming into your mind almost constantly. Why not it be a larger percentage of this word coming into your heart and mind? Let's pray for one another. Pray for me, and I will pray for you. It doesn't end there, does it? He basically says, to you who overcome, and how are you overcoming in the ways that we just talked about, there will be the hidden manna and the white stone of remembrance with your name on it. These are wonderful pictures. I mean, I love that we're coming to the communion table this morning. The hidden manna. What, uh, how about a, a third to fifth grader? Where, where did you hear the word manna? Anybody? Where have you heard the word manna before? Anybody? I'll give you a hint. Moses. Yeah. Thank you. God sends manna in the wilderness, right? There was no food. God sent manna. And so when he talks about manna, he's talking about sustenance, his faithfulness to provide and to give to us. And the hidden manna, which is very interesting, is they put one piece of manna as a memorial in the Ark of the Covenant, and they called that the hidden manna. Pretty interesting. And then, guess what? A white stone of remembrance. These stones were, uh, there was many uses for these stones, but one of them was you would get a white stone with your name on it, and it was an invitation to a big banquet, and you would have to show that stone with your name on it. And I think the picture here is just so beautiful that as we come, as we repent, as we come to the word, as we're living out of this, he who is with us is doing what? He provides the sustenance. He provides, he is the bread of life, as he tells us. And so we come and our faith is being strengthened as we come to this word, which we live on. Who's the living word? Jesus. So we're living out of this word. Our faith is being strengthened. We're moving into the world. We're not compromising. We're being a witness. We're being light. We're loving God. We're loving others. And as we're doing that, we got this beautiful picture that here we are in this wonderful intimate relationship with this God who loves us so much that at the end of time, as it says in Revelation 19, we're all invited to the banquet. Hallelujah. We are all invited to the banquet. We are all children of God, and our names are written on those stones when we come to the banquet. Hallelujah. We have something to look forward to. Amen. Amen. I get excited about this stuff. What about you? I need to hear a few more amens out of this crowd. 
And how wonderful it is that we can come to the communion table having just, well, because we're coming to this place. Now I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we come to the communion table this morning. But I love this. I love it. So many, so many things as, 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 as we look at this, right? What's the first thing this tells us? God never compromised with us. He loved us so much that he gave us everything, even his own son, that he would be obedient to death for us. There was no compromise in God's love for us. Hallelujah. And when we come to this table, we also see that in that love, in that sacrifice, a way was provided for us that we could be not only reconciled to God, but we could come and we could bring the things that we were struggling with. We could bring the things we're compromising with and we could come in this meal and say, Lord, forgive me. And he forgives us. That all of you are in here right now. When you come in a moment and lay your heart before the Lord, there's nothing that you've done that God can't forgive. There's nothing that you've done that he didn't know on the cross and die for. So you're going to come to the table and you're going to be forgiven and then we're going to be strengthened as the children of God. In this moment, that Holy Spirit that is now alive in us, that is empowering us, that brings the word of God and its truth into our hearts, is now saying to us in this very moment, you're now forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. And in that, we come to this meal and we're strengthened in our faith and refreshed in our souls because we can look forward to the manna and the white stone and the banquet and the one who's coming back and the new heaven and the new earth. So it's worth living in the way that we live and growing in no compromise, because everybody in the new heavens and the new earth will never compromise again. Hallelujah. That's just wonderful. So that's why we come to the table this morning. So I'm going to ask you now to take a few moments before the Lord. This is your time to come. Where is it that you're compromising? Where is it that the world's influencing you? Where is it that you're not loving others Or is it that you need to not only know forgiveness, but know the power of the Holy Spirit to make you more like Jesus? This is the time to come. So take some time before the Lord.